the word of truth, as Paul says to Timothy. And this exhortation, this urgent command to contend for the truth of the gospel is our responsibility, not someone else's. Not someone else's. And while there are other things that we could talk about, there are times when it is necessary for us to take up this battle in a special way, although we never stop fighting it, but in a, in a, in a special way. I like hanging out with my boys. I like to go fishing. I like playing basketball with them. Um, every now and then playing video games. I never win. I'm terrible at video games. But I like doing stuff with my boys, and I don't mind when they ask me to do those things with them. But if somebody's trying to break into the house, that's not the time. If the house is on fire, that's not the time to go play video games or play basketball or to go fishing. There is something else that is more urgent. Amen? And the truth of the gospel, the grace of Jesus Christ, who he is, the person and work of God, his sovereignty, his majesty, his dominion, as we'll eventually get to at the end here, it is all under attack today because man loves to exalt man. Natural born man does not like to exalt God. Men who exalt God have been born again by the spirit of God. That is how we become lovers of God and lovers of his glory, and of his majesty, and of his dominion, and of his power, and of his sovereignty. Natural man does not love the things of God. Natural man is uh, uh, treacherous and against the things of God. We are all born haters of God. And apart from a work of the Spirit of God in our lives, we will not contend for it. But if we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good then it is our responsibility. So this is the urgent command. And now the majority of the letter, the body of the letter, is in verses 4 through 19. This is what I call a helpful warning. But he goes through it in kind of two cycles. Again, I said Jude outlines very cleanly, which I appreciate. But he just goes through these cycles where he gives a condemning description of the false teachers, and then he gives a biblical example. So a condemning description and then a biblical example. And he goes through that cycle five times. In, but it's all, it, it all serves as a helpful warning to us to be able to uh, see false teachers for who they are and to see their teaching for what it is. And so let's work through this helpful warning. And I'm just, again, I'm, I'm going to sit a little longer. Um, I'm going to stop and pause and point some things out along the way. Um, not going to be able to deal with all of it equally, but let's just begin to read and work our way through it. Verse 4. It says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, um, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who, and here's the first uh, kind of condemning description, who pervert the grace of God. So over the last couple of weeks, we, we, looked at, we looked at counterfeit love last week at the end of John, 1 John chapter 4 and also in the beginning of chapter 5. The week before that, we looked at the real meaning of truth and the real Jesus, not the counterfeit Jesus. That is preached oftentimes today. And so here now we have a counterfeit version of grace. They teach a perverted, it's a twisted, a twisted grace. They speak about grace, but what do they do with this grace? They twist it, they pervert it into licentiousness or sensuality, as he says here. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master 
and Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. These people were not true followers of Jesus Christ because they had not understood true grace. They had accepted and also preached a false grace, a perverted grace that denies our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And this is always what you're going to find with false teachers is that Many times they will speak of the grace of God, and hear me, I want to sit on this for a second, because there is an aspect of the grace of God that covers our sin, amen? We just sang about it, and it's really good news, and I want you to hear me, hear me. And there will never be a day in your life, even as a believer, that you will not need this grace of God that covers your sin. Because if I can just be honest with you, you are far more sinful than what you think. Far more. And there will never be one day until you die and go to glory or Jesus comes back that you will not need this grace of God to cover your sin. But the real grace of God doesn't just cover our sin. But it, and that's part of it. Hear me. But it does not just cover our sin. It also helps us to conquer our sin. To help us walk in daily victory. Because Jesus is not only our Lord and Savior, our sacrifice and our substitute, the perfect lamb who was slain, he is also, as he says here, our Lord and our master. And so when we sin, and we will, we need the grace that covers, but we also come back to him for strength and the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in the victory and to get up again and to conquer sin. And this is what we do until we go home to glory. We make war on our sin. And false prophets will do one of two things. They will either teach that, no, God, God, don't worry about your sin. It's all covered. Let's not talk about sin. Don't talk about anything negative. Don't talk about anything that's going to bring you down. Just focus on the positive. They're either going to do that, or they're going to teach another version of false grace that says that when they, they have these extra spiritual experiences, and we'll see some of this as we go throughout the letter here, well, they'll have these kind of mystical experiences that they'll say is from the Holy Spirit, but it's not, and they, they will now say that they don't sin anymore. That they don't sin anymore. Um, there's a lot to say. There's a couple, I mean, just to give you some practical examples, um, I remember a couple weeks ago, I, I named some names. I don't know if that made you uncomfortable or not, but too bad. We're going to do it again. But I, you know, a while back I mentioned, uh, I think two weeks ago when I was talking about this in First John 4, we mentioned Todd White. You can find clips all, and again, hear me, it's not, I understand you can't believe everything you see on YouTube, okay? I'm with you on that. However, it's in abundance. These guys, they teach it openly. You can find clips all over the place of Todd White on YouTube saying that he hasn't sinned in the last 12 years since he came to know Jesus. That's a lie. It's a lie. He's a false teacher. That's a lie. You're minimizing the blood of Christ. We just got done going through in the book of 1 John says, whoever says he's without sin is a liar. The truth is not in him. And that's just one example. I'm saying false teachers will do one of two things. They will use the grace of God as license, saying we're not going to focus on the negative, don't worry about sin, Grace, co grace covers that, or on the other hand, they'll say that they've now become completely sanctified. Both of those are false. The true grace of God understands that we always will need the forgiving, covering, merciful grace of God to cover us, but at the same time, that grace is also given to help us conquer. It is both. Because Jesus is not only 
our Savior. He is also our Lord and Master, as he says here. And we do not deny this. Listen, if the Holy Spirit, the Holy, Holy Spirit is in you, which is true of everybody who's believed in Christ, the Bible says in Romans 8, 9, that if, that in Romans 8, 9, that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. To say that the other way is that everyone who does have the Spirit of Christ does belong to Christ. If the Holy Spirit is in you because you've been truly born again, the Holy Spirit is going to convict you of your unholy sin. Right? This is how it works. And so the Holy Spirit in us wants to help us to overcome our sin. And when we read about Jesus being not only our Savior, not only our sacrifice and substitute, but also our Lord and Master, that's good news. We love that. You know why? Because Eric Miller, on his own, stinks at fighting his sin. I need a Lord. I need a Master. I need someone who is stronger than I to help me to overcome my sin. And so when I say that, see, see in the scripture that Jesus is not only my Savior, but also my Lord and my Master, I say, hallelujah! I want you to live your life in me. And this is what Paul says in places like Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. This life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why this is good news. He is our Savior and also our Lord and our Master. And those who truly know him love it. We love it. Verse 5, now I, want you to, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains and under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, did you see what he did there? He started off in verse 4 with this condemning description, and then he gives some biblical examples in verses 5 through 7. And he speaks here of the people of Israel who came out of Egypt, uh, but were later on destroyed. We're not, it, it, it could be one of several things. It could be after they danced around the golden calf and built the golden calf, 3,000 were destroyed. Excuse me, later on in Numbers chapter 16, at Karaz Rebellion, 14,700 died and were destroyed because they rebelled and went into pagan idolatry. And then also in Numbers chapter 25, uh, they committed great sexual immorality and worshipped Baal, and 24,000 of them were destroyed out of the people of Israel. God takes sin very seriously. Very seriously. And people who want to trifle with it and not acknowledge that they need a Lord and a Savior and false teachers especially, who want to minimize the necessity of the work of Christ on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection, will not get away with it. Because God is serious not only about sin, but he's also serious about the glory of his son and all that he came to do to deliver us from sin. So going on here, <laughs> he goes into another cycle of a condemning description and then a biblical uh, example. Um, verse 8, he says, Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, relying on their dreams, relying on their dreams, what do they do? They defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Relying on their dreams. I'm telling you, the word of God is true. This is written 2,000 years ago. This is the same thing that these shucksters still do today. Shucksters a word? It's okay. I, I don't even know where that came from. I haven't used that word in 20 years. Anyway, 
But uh, they still do the same thing. So we're doing in Jude's day. I had a dream. God told me. God told me. God spoke to me. God told me. And what are they doing? They are lifting up their own personal experience over the authority of the word of God. That's what they're doing. They're undermining the word of their Lord and master, as we just just talked about. This was true all the way back in Jeremiah's day. Listen to what God says here, describing the dreams that the false prophets had in Jeremiah chapter 23 versus his word, okay? He says, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies, who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal? Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. Amen? What an awesome verse. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare. Thus declares the Lord, behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness, when I did not send them or charge them. So they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. Satan and his schemes through false teachers has always been the same throughout time. It's the same today, it was the same in Jude's day, and it was the same thousands of years earlier in Jeremiah's day. People want to speak to their own personal experience, even if it's not always a dream. It's some sort of experience that they had, and the Lord spoke to them. And we have not only the right, but the responsibility to call them out when they're wrong. Okay? Um. Let me give you one that will really step on your toes. Maybe. I have never, so this has been going on forever, okay? This type of stuff, that false teachers say this stuff. But I have never seen any, I have never, and, and, they're, and they're wrong. They're just wrong, okay? Their stuff, the stuff that they say doesn't come true. But I've never seen so many be wrong at one time as they were during the last presidential cycle when everybody was prophesying that Donald Trump was going to get back into office. Now, maybe he didn't run into any of that at all, but here's the thing. They were wrong. And here's all I'm asking for, is if you're going to quote-unquote prophesy and say that something's going to happen and then it doesn't, you better stand up and admit that you were wrong. But none of them do. They just go on playing their games. Guys, this is, this is all over in our land. This is all over in evangelicalism. And it's a farce. It's a complete farce. And what we tend to do many times is because we believe the 11th commandment. That is, don't say anything mean. That wasn't nice. 
is we're afraid to call lies what they are, lies. And we can speak the truth in love, okay? But in a way that is crystal clear. And again, the principle here that I would want you to get is that whether it's a dream or some other sort of experience that they've had, they will always exalt these experiences above the word of God. And they say things that are blasphemous. Verse 9 says, and now he gives this biblical example, he says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay? And so <laughs> he's saying here, Michael the archangel, and this is a, this is a story not from the Bible, but from a book called The Testament of Moses. And that, let me explain this very, very, very briefly. Um, not everything, everything that's in the Bible alone, alone is inspired. But that doesn't mean there aren't things outside of the Bible that might not be true, okay? So just like people can write a book today, and there might be some true stuff in it, but it's not inspired. The Word of God is what we hold everything by. This is from um, a book in ancient Jewish uh, literature called The Testimony of Moses. It's not inspired. It was never brought into, uh, canonized in, into Scripture. No one throughout church history has ever thought, uh, or, or serious people throughout church history have never thought that it was inspired. Yet, this story might tend to be true, and Jude is just using this story that his uh, original hearers would have known about how Michael um, contended with uh, the body of Moses after he died, and we don't know what exactly Satan wanted uh, to do to it, but the point is this, is that even Michael, who is an archangel in dealing with the devil, doesn't just begin to just call him names, but he says, the Lord rebuke you, the Lord rebuke you. It's it's a rebuke, but it's still somewhat of a respectful rebuke, knowing that the ultimate authority that Michael had and the only authority that we have comes from the Lord, not from us. And the point being this, is that, and you'll see this exact same things today if you'll just flip on the television, is that false prophets today will say all sorts of things. They'll begin to speak against Satan and tear all these things down and pray against the devil and command them to do this. And Jude's saying, these guys have no idea what they're doing. They have no clue what they're talking about. Um, even Michael the archangel didn't deal with them that way. He goes on into another cycle here of a condemning description and, then, and then, then another example. He says, verse 10, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Okay, so Jew is, sorry, Jude is starting to get a little bit uh, serious here uh, with the names and with the descriptions. And I would just remind you that uh, this, is all, this is all inspired. He says they don't have any understanding and he calls them unreasoning animals. That they're like unreasoning animals who simply go by instinct. Okay? And then he explains this more by giving three more biblical examples in verse 11. He says, woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So he gives three biblical examples. One of Cain, which is obviously the story uh, of, of Cain and Abel. You have Balaam, uh, who ended up getting rebuked by a donkey because he was just so hard-hearted in going against the will of the Lord. And you have Korah's rebellion, where the earth literally opened up and swallowed them because of their rebellion against the leadership that uh, God had put in place 
in Moses and Aaron. What's interesting in him calling them unreasoning animals and that they kind of act like animals and just understanding things instinctively is that, especially in, in, in Cain's case and Balaam's case, both of them have to do with animals. So in Cain's case, listen to when he, and you remember Abel offered a sacrifice that was acceptable to the Lord. Cain's was not um, uh, accepted before the Lord because it did not contain uh, blood. But verse 6 of Genesis chapter 4 says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do, and if you do not do well, listen, he says, Sin is crouching at the door. And this is imagery of like an animal, like a wild animal waiting, crouching at the door to pounce. And God says, Its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. And the point being is that he's, he's tying in here that these men do not live their lives by the authoritative truth of the word of God, but rather by what they feel. And in the battle for overcoming the flesh, the issue is always one of truth, that the spirit taking the truth of the word of God, working it in our hearts to help us walk in the truth. To walk in the truth is also to walk in the spirit. But many times they will talk simply about the spirit or their feelings um, or their instincts, as Jude puts it here. Does that make sense? You with me? They, if I can just put it this way too, they just have big mouths. They have big mouths. They blaspheme. Okay, okay, let me say, um, <coughs> in the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments is, to not take the, is not to take the Lord's name in vain. Okay, let, let me explain that for a second. It definitely includes not using God's name as a curse word. Okay, um, So we don't use God's name as a curse word. That, that's part of it. But that's actually not the main thrust of it. When it speaks of not taking the Lord's name in vain, what he's speaking of is saying, in the name of the Lord, or thus saith the Lord, so and so, such and such is true, or such and so, this, is what, this is what's true. And the Lord hasn't actually told you that. That's what it primarily means when it says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And these guys do this continuously. They say, thus saith the Lord, the Lord spoke to me, the Lord told me. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. Um, and again, we see that because of the fruit of their lives and the doctrine and the truth that they teach. It is contrary to the word of God. The next cycle here, verse 12. Uh, this is the most colorful of all the descriptions that he gives. He just kind of lets it fly here. I like this. Verse 12, he says, These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Hidden reefs, selfish shepherds, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, Wandering stars. Six descriptions that are all condemning of these men. Uh, just to comment on a couple of them, the main idea here is that they're selfish and that they, they offer a lot, they promise a lot, but they are empty. There's no substance to their promise. 
hidden reefs. This is the idea of a, a ship going along and you don't know you've hit the reef until you've hit the reef. And they shipwreck people's faith. Um, shepherds who feed themselves. Shepherds are meant to take care of the sheep. Jesus said the true shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. These shepherds feed themselves. They're waterless clouds. Here comes a cloud. We need some rain, especially in a time when many people were subsistence farmers. We need this rain. Here comes a cloud. No rain. That's them. This is a little bit of a different one. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. <laughs> so he's saying they're fruitless. Um, you're supposed to bear fruit in late autumn. There's no fruit in the time when there should be fruit. They are twice dead because they are also uprooted. So they're, they're, and I think what he means here is they're dead because they're fruitless when there should be fruit, but not only that, they're uprooted. So you're like, you see this tree and the tree doesn't have fruit on it. Like, yeah, something's wrong with that tree, but it's still standing. He's saying they're not even standing. They have no root. They're uprooted. They are dead. They, here, here's what I want to say is they are not Christians who are a little bit off. These men that he's describing are not in Christ. They are twice dead, uprooted. Verse 14, it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their, all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Did you catch all the ungodliness there? Let me read verse 15 again. To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all their harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Ungodliness is what marks. And when we say ungodliness, what that means is there, there's no fear of the Lord. To be godly, the idea of being godly is to fear the Lord, to have a reverence for him. That's what it means to be godly. They have no fear of God. They exalt themselves as God. Um, they offer people things that they cannot back up. And let me just, again, let me, let me pause here for a second because we've just been plowing along here. Um, I, I could tell you so many stories. Maybe you could too. But I, just for me, just personally, um, especially early on, in my Christian walk, uh, Hannah and I got involved in many churches where there were a lot of false teachers, if I can just be honest. And just hear me, my story, this is just, I admit that this is anecdotal, okay? But let me just give you an example, okay? Um, <laughs> like, I've been in the meetings, and this is fairly common, but I remember one in particular where, speaking of a waterless cloud, there was an older couple um, it was actually an older Amish couple, and uh, the husband was deaf, he could not hear, and one of um, his family members had brought him to this meeting where this quote-unquote apostle was there and was a healer, again, in scare quotes, and was a healer, and, um, and I was sitting in the about three-quarters of the way back in the auditorium. And, of course, he preached a little message, and then as they do, then the show got going. And as they're doing, you know, whatever, he's going around healing people. I remember one lady uh, supposedly got healed of diabetes. And she was so excited that after he was done praying for her, she turned around and just walked to her seat. Just, 
But eventually this guy made his way to this Amish couple that was sitting right in front of me. And um, the acquaintance that had brought them to this meeting uh, was telling the apostle that this guy's deaf, pray for him, you know, heal him. And he goes, oh yes, I can get rid of this, you know. And he begins to lay his hands on him and pray for him. He says, you're healed, you're healed. And, and then uh, he says, test him, test him. And so the wife leans over to him and, and says something in his ear. And I'll never forget, because this was in the row right in front of me now. And he just goes. And he prayed again. He healed, he healed, test him, test him. So she whispered something or said something in his ear again. He's, that happened three times. And then, eventually, on the, after the third time, and him going like that each time, he goes, okay, and he walks away, and he just... That poor guy was deaf, and he really wanted to not be deaf. And a waterless cloud came his way, offering him something that he did not have. And I want to be clear, I, guys... We pray for healing all the time. Can God heal? Absolutely. But it is under his sovereign hand that that happens. And because he is sovereign, we are not ashamed to pray bold prayers, okay? But the power does not lie in us. It lies in him. And the authority that, yes, and we have authority, but the authority that we have is from him. And to wield it in such a way as if it's not from him is reckless, careless, and as Jude says over and over again here, it is ungodly and blasphemous. These men pretend to have something that they don't. They are waterless clouds, wild waves of the sea, only casting up foam. The next said, uh, we'll move quicker here. Um, Jude 16 through 19, verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. I don't even really know what to add to that. You just, it's pretty, it's just what they are. Verse 17. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. There's the word again. You'll notice again another word that's been repeated that I've touched on a little bit. Passions, desires, instincts. Okay? And then verse 19, kind of a summary statement as he closes out the section. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Again, the men that he are describing, they claim to have the Spirit of God. They claim to be believers, and they claim to be teachers with authority, many times calling themselves apostles or prophets. Okay, But they do not have the Spirit of God. They are devoid of the Spirit. They are not truly in Christ. That's what he says here. They're devoid of the Spirit. And why does all this happen? It is ultimately, if we can zoom out for a second, before we move on to the next section here, this is ultimately the work of Satan. As I quoted earlier back in 1 Timothy uh, 4.1, he speaks of all these things are ultimately the doctrines of demons. That is where it comes from. Okay? And so we need to be 
on our guard because these men want to work their way into the church. Satan will attack from without, but he also wants to attack from within. And in any sort of attack, almost no matter what the the nature of the attack that, that you're speaking of, to have something come from within is almost always more lethal and deadly than the attack from without, okay? Because the one from within always involves deception of some sort. Now, the la- these last couple of verses, verses 20 through 23, um, he gives us some practical instruction, okay, after the helpful warning. Verse 20, and it, again, we're not, we don't have time to, to touch on all of this, but let me just read it, verses 20 through 23. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, because again, for all those who truly know Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And so we pray in the Holy Spirit. This is just the idea of just being, simply being led in the Spirit. We can pray with our mind, Paul says. We also pray with the Spirit. Sometimes we don't know how to pray, but the Spirit intercedes for us. The Bible says in Romans 8, with groanings that words cannot express. The Holy Spirit wants to pray in us and through us, and he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So the first thing we do here practically as we are in this battle, as we are contending for the faith, as we are anguishing, as we are straining to uh, contend for the truth of the gospel that has been entrusted to us, the saints, is we have to be in prayer. We have to be in prayer. Prayer is not optional. It is essential. And uh, if I can just quickly hear, he is definitely speaking of personal prayer. But in the context, he's especially speaking of corporate prayer. The, the use here, like in verse 20, it's y'all. And we don't always catch this in the English, but actually the majority of the time in the New Testament when it says you, it's not the singular you. It's the y'all, the y'all you. So it's, he's speaking of you corporately, but you, beloved, building yourselves, plural, up in your most holy faith. He's speaking about the church being in corporate prayer. How does the church guard itself from this sort of treachery and deception that wants to enter in? And listen, folks, Mercy Hill is no exception. The devil wants to come in and he wants to destroy us from within while he's also attacking us from without. It's always been the case, okay? What must we do? We must pray. We must pray together, okay? Yes, pray by yourself. Pray on your own. Get your own group of friends together and pray. Pray at your small church. Come to prayer on Wednesday mornings. Come to prayer this Wednesday evening at the Hub, 6.30. We're going to pray. Why? Because we need it. Because we need Jesus. The longer I walk with him, the more I realize, the more I need him. And so we pray. And he says here, we pray waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this idea of waiting, other English translations translate it looking because that's the Greek word. It's a waiting with expectation. It's a waiting with looking. It's a kid looking, waiting, looking forward to Christmas morning. Not just waiting in line at the BMV. Um, there's expectation, there's hope. Okay, We must pray. Third, we have mercy. We have mercy. Our lives have to be marked by mercy. Look at verses 20 and 23. He gives three contexts of people. Again, I'm just brushing over this. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. Second category, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Third category, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. There are those who doubt. They're not sure what's going on. Toxic Christianity and false teaching of all sorts of all sorts, whether it's licentiousness or legalism. False teaching of all sorts has left so many people confused. 
understandably so. If you're here this morning, you've grown up in church, and you're a little bit confused, listen to me. I have so much mercy for you. Because I also, one time, was a very confused Christian. Because you hear things on one side, and you hear things on the other side, and you don't know what's true, and both people seem to be sincere, and both groups seem to be pretty passionate. You've got to get into the Word of God yourself. You've got to read it. And we will help you, we, we will show you, but honestly, I can say this with a clear conscience. I don't think a false teacher will ever say this to you. Maybe there would be one, but I don't think so. You can test them this way. But I'm telling you right now, you, every single one of you has a right to question anything that I ever say on the authority of the Word of God. If I say something that does not line up with this book, you not only have the right, you have the responsibility to come and tell me. And I welcome that. Because this is all I've got. It's all you've got. And we sit under the authority of the Word of God. Not the dreams, visions, or goosebumps of any person. So we have mercy on those. Others, we say by snatching them out of the fire. I think these are people that are wandering into this teaching. They seem to be true believers, but they are about to have their faith shipwrecked on one of these hidden reefs. We are to snatch them from the fire. We are to plead with them. We are to tell them what we believe to be true. We are to contend for the faith. And this is why it ultimately matters. Because the faith and the lives, the well-being, and possibly even the, the eternal well-being of people is at stake. Is because if you are truly saved, if you are going to be in heaven forever someday, if you are truly going to be born again, you are going to have those things happen to you on the basis of the truth of the truth. And so the truth matters. And so we want to save others by snatching them out of the fire. And then this last category, I believe he's speaking here of, false, of the false teachers themselves. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. It, it, it's, it's this idea is that if you are teaching this type of garbage that I've been describing this morning, then my attitude towards you, if I'm having a, a conversation with an, somebody that I believe to be a false teacher, is I'll have mercy on them. I, will, I want to call them back to the truth of the word of God. But like, I'm not going to give affirmation to your teaching. And I want to tell you something that as a pastor, this happens all the time. It happens to all of us. But I have people who I think are false teachers. And they'll, and they'll say things, oh, brother, can't we just love each other? And I'll be honest with you. I don't like to just get in fights just to get in fights. Like, it's not fun. Like, you might think, Eric, you're just a contentious person. I, I'm not. I don't think. Anyway, I don't. But, like, I know that it's hard. I understand that it's difficult to tell somebody that you think that they're wrong. But it's necessary. This is what Jude is calling us to do. See, there's a way for me to talk about this. I'm like, oh, yeah, we should know the truth. I'm telling you, this, if we're going to obey this command to contend for the faith once and all entrusted to the saints. I'm telling you, folks, there's going to be a point in your life where the rubber really hits the road. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you just going to gloss it over? And I'm not telling you you have to yell. In fact, I'm telling you not to yell. I'm telling you to obey this command, to have mercy, but with fear. Fear of getting sucked in to that hidden reef that wants to shipwreck you but also the fear of the Lord, knowing that one day each and every single one of us is going to stand before him and give an account. Amen? Okay. There was one more section of this I told you about. Um, and again, I, I, want, I was torn on what to do, but I felt like we needed to go through this whole thing. Um, and we've gone through the, uh, 
the helpful warning and the practical instruction. Um, but this is so good. The glorious promise. This glorious promise that bookends this letter. You'll see it in verse 1. Verses 1 and 2, and then also verses 24 and 25. Let me go back to verses 1 and 2, because I didn't read those. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, <coughs> and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept. Kept. Everybody say kept. Kept for Jesus Christ. Now, I know it's the end of the sermon, but I'm going to get a little technical here, because again, I want you to see that this is coming from the Word of God, not from me. The last couple of verses, verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep, everybody say keep, keep. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever, amen. The keeping work of God. There are two different Greek words here in verse, in verse 1 where he says that we are kept for Jesus Christ. It is the Greek word tereo, tereo. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but you probably don't know either. Tereo. Um, and it's the idea of keeping a watchful eye on. God is watching us all the time. We, his church, are the apple of his eye. He's keeping a watchful eye on us. The last keep there, in verse 24, that's also translated keep in the English, is the Greek word philoso, philoso. And this carries with it, it definitely carries with it the idea of watching, but it also carries with it the idea of like more military strength and actual might guarding it. Let me show you a place, okay, in Acts chapter 12, where both of these word, words are used, philoso and tereo, in a different context, um, and just to show you the context and how they kind of work. It's Acts chapter 12, okay, verses 12, 12 uh, th throw the other one up there, Josh, for me. Here we go. You'll see both of them here. This is Peter when Herod had arrested him, okay, and it says, when he had seized him, Herod, he put him in prison, deliver delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard, and that guard, word guard there is philosophy. That's the word that is used in verse 24 of Jude. It's military strength. Soldiers were philosophing him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was being kept. Tereo, the one that's used in verse 2. And the idea here is they now have him in their present possession and they are watching him. He's locked up in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to, to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door, were guarding. Again, Tereo, they were watching him. They were watching, watching him, also with their military might. Verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. You can go to the next slide, Josh. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So Peter doesn't even fully know what's going on. He is being, he is being tureod and uh, philosophed, okay? by 
these, by these guards, by Herod's guards. But folks, Herod isn't guarding us. Almighty God is guarding us. And as we can see here, Herod was a king. He had some might, he had some strength, he had some power, he had some authority. But he didn't have, as it says here in verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Herod tried as much as he could to Tereo and Philoso Peter, but it didn't work. Why? Because there was someone greater involved in his life. And it is this God who, if you are truly in Christ Jesus, is going to keep you and see you through to the end. Amen? I say all that because as you read this letter and as I've tried to point out, sometimes people take this and they do the same thing with 1 John. And they listen to the stark language and the warnings. And hear me, I want you to test yourself, as Paul says to the Corinthians, to see whether or not you're truly in the faith. But the issue is never that you can lose your salvation. The issue is, do you really have it? But if you have it, the almighty God of the universe is going to tereo you and philoso you till the end of time. And you are secure in him. Because Jesus Christ is the Savior, you are the one that needs saved, and he does not fail in his mission. And so the Bible says he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him. Worship team, you can come up, and we'll close. A couple quick things. Super simple. Number one, read your Bible. Read your Bible. I know you've heard me say this a thousand times. Read your Bible. Not in a legalistic way, not in a way where you, I'm not trying to condemn you if you miss your devotions one morning. I, I just, just read your Bible. Stick close to the truth. Secondly, pray. Come to prayer when we pray. Pray by yourself. Pray at your small church. Find uh, somebody to pray with. Seek it out. Pray in the Holy Spirit keeping yourself, also the word tereo, that God keeps us and God uses means to keep us. One of the means that God uses in keeping us is that we pray. And why do we pray? Because the Holy Spirit is in us, urging us to pray. Third, if you are here this morning and you're confused, you're confused because you've heard different teachings on both sides, if I can just appeal to you for a second. Listen, I understand, and I understand that in <laughs> uh, maybe my angst this morning in teaching this, it, I, I, I don't in no way mean to heap any sort, of, any sort of hurt or weight on you that's not necessary, but I cannot read the truth of the Word of God, as we've talked about this morning, and not be compelled to plead with you that this is important. And what I would tell you is, as you prayerfully seek out men and women that are older than you in the faith that seem to be bearing godly fruit in their lives, and as you stay in prayer, and as you ultimately stay in the word of God as your ultimate authority, 
and not the voice of men. You will grow and you can gain clarity in the midst of all the confusion that abounds out there today. But you, if you know Jesus Christ as your savior, and I'll, I'll be done here, I know I'm going long, but you are a disciple. You are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you are responsible to follow him. That's the charge he gives to disciples. Follow me. And the same is true for us. Let's pray. Father, thanks for today. We thank you for your word. <coughs> we ask God that you would strengthen our hearts and help us. Help us to walk in the truth. Help us to stand for the truth. Help us to contend for the truth of the gospel, the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. And we thank you, Jesus Christ, that you are alive, risen, and that you keep us to the end. Have your way in our hearts, God, as we stand and sing. In Christ's name I pray, amen.